0: Friends, welcome back to the Just the Jesus podcast. We have another conversation with Ryan Pfeiffer this week, and we're diving deeper into the first half of chapter 8, and this is the penultimate episode before we take a break for Christmas. we got one more next week with Ryan, and that will close out the first half of the Gospel of Mark. We'll come back in the new year. But the series isn't going to be called Just Follow Jesus anymore. It's going to be called The Way of the Cross. We talk about that a little bit at the end of today's conversation. So this week's conversation, we spend some time diving a little bit deeper into appetites and hungers. And how exactly is it that we can bring our hungers to Jesus and we talk about hardness of heart a little bit, explore that some, and then spend a, a good little bit of time exploring yeast and the curious phrase that Jesus uses, warning us to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. So we spend some time unpacking what that could look like and uh, it's the background of Exodus there perhaps and some of Nero and it's good stuff I think you'll enjoy it it's a a great time always a pleasure to be with Ryan so we hope that this conversation this week inspires and encourages and provokes you to a greater hunger and thirst for Jesus for the Holy Spirit and for his transformation in your lives it is always a pleasure and a privilege to be with you my friends so thanks for listening Welcome, friends. All right, I'm just going to be really vulnerable. Um, Ryan and I were having a great conversation. Uh, by, ourselves. by ourselves Without you <laughs> How long was it? Was it like 30, 20 minutes? I mean, minutes, it was minutes. maybe 20 minutes, yeah But we got about 20 minutes into this week's conversation you're picking up steam We were exactly, saying profound things Ryan was right in the middle of something <laughs> oh, That would have changed your our you life crying, I had I oh had you laughing gosh. It was going crazy <laughs> And I look over, you know, managing the clock And thinking, when do we, you know, like How long can we sit here? And I look over and I do not see the recorder recording anything, and my <laughs> heart sunk. And I had to, I had to, I had to say, Ryan, I'm so sorry.
1: Fresh start, bro. You've We're thrown, doing it twice. Just your like the before, this,
0: before this swine. So forgive me, Ryan. Oh gosh, come on. It's perfect. It's a perfect intro
1: to this last weekend's message because you know, Mark does this a lot. He has these repetitions where uh, and we're going to see it again this next weekend. He has two, he has both, you know, both two storms on the Sea of Galilee, two major feedings. There's actually more than that. But then this next week, we're going to watch Jesus heal a man twice. And the first time, he doesn't quite see clearly, and he touches him again before he sees everything clearly. It's it's a very intentional narrative tool and design that Mark uses to make a point about the life of faith. Mm. And so we
0: are living it ourselves,
2: dude.
1: <laughs>
0: what a pastoral move right there, yeah, dude! Boom, you boom. did not drop that ball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we back to the front on a pastoral reflection. Yeah, you know, I I'd love, guys. There's this this adorable story. So without further ado, Ryan, I I'm, I ask you oftentimes at the front here. Hey, is there anything that's just kind of caught your pastoral mind and heart that in the life of the church that you think is is worth sharing as? you know, as an encouragement or as a challenge or as an invitation. Uh, so you have um, you have a story about letting, you have a story of you as the Pied Pfeiffer, the benevolent Pied Pfeiffer that you could share with us.
1: Okay, here's how I want to frame it. Back in Mark chapter one, verse 17, Jesus tells the disciples, come follow me and I will teach you to fish for people. So really being a disciple of Jesus, someone who fishes for people, that's really just how Mark leaves it for now. And so that's been coming up. I've been bringing that up each week as I've been showing how people, Jesus is using people to share these stories about him and then the crowds swell and people come like the guy who had been set free from the legion of demons. Well, this last weekend I was out passing out lollipops and, um, this three siblings come up to me for lollipops and led by their, their sister, And uh, oftentimes I am not, I don't make it out to where the kids are, you know, and the parents over by the children's ministry. I'm over in front of the auditorium and, but I have my bike of lollipops and this little girl comes and finds me. She is literally seeking and searching for me and my lollipops. She comes and finds me and they come and get their plop plops and they're so excited. Brother gets it, little baby sister gets it, and then they leave. And that's where I would think the story is going to end. But lo and behold, it does not end there. She comes back. This little girl comes back now with her little friend, this other little girl. And she goes, see, there he is. And she points to me and she and they come up and they get their lollipop. And then she leaves. And I'm thinking, okay, that was so cute. And then she comes back, get it a third time, bro, a third time. <laughs> and she brings two little boys. And she says the same thing again. There he is. And uh, it is such a, oh, it. even though I'm telling it a second time here, it's such an endearing story of, the life of a disciple. And what Jesus is training his disciples to do, the life of a disciple is to taste the goodness of God. Mm. And when we taste God's goodness, it it creates an, an infectious, contagious dynamic in our life. And it can't help but overflow in our life. And I think that's what the gospel is showing us. It's that we actually have to act in, 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 a, in a dynamic of resistance to keep it from overflowing to other people. Mm. And uh, maybe that's what Jesus means by hardness of heart. I don't know. But uh, I think Jesus in this little girl is just giving us a picture of what it looks like to be a disciple and a fisher of people.
0: Dude, you've made a little sugar addict. <laughs> Stop. And she has become it's be- only three grams she- <laughs> this little girl has is actually known throughout the preschool and the children's ministry as the great plop plop evangelist <laughs> she's like come see there's a man yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> he is this uh, this reliable fount of delicious sugar um no, I prefer, I, I prefer goodness. Uh, yes, uh, of course. Come on, Psalm thirty-four: Taste and see yeah. that the Lord is good. All right, we'll give it to you. You're a dad <sighs> and you're a pastor. Thank you. You know, I I love that um, because of how simple it is, but also because it's um, it does challenge us. It it's a prov- provocative little story because, it, in me at least, it begs the question of, well, hey, um. What's my appetite for Jesus? And also, yeah, am I am I at a place where I've been tasting and seeing the goodness of God uh, and I am sharing that openly? And if not, why? What's going on? And I think that's, that leads us into um, kind of the first place I want to talk about in this topic or theme of, of hunger and appetites. This is the first point that you brought up during the, the sermon. And um, one of those little Easter eggs that are this key details, concrete details is what they technically be called in the writing space that Mark uses is he names that this crowd has been with Jesus for three days. And to me, I look at that and I I see not only, I mean, the miracle here is centered around the feeding of them. So there's the explicit hunger, but they were hungry enough for truth. They're hungry enough. Their curiosity was powerful enough. We've talked about curiosity a lot and that being, a marker of faith and a precursor to discipleship is, Hey, what's the posture or attitude that you're bringing towards Jesus towards the message of truth towards his person. And these people are willing to sit with him for three days I mean, that's a ravenous crowd. When was the last time that you have encountered anything? And I'm not talking about binging Netflix or something because you're just wanting to like, you know, veg out, but something that genuinely had captured your mind, your heart and your attention to enough that you would dedicate, you would just sit there for three days. Like, no, 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 no. tell another one. Like, wait, I have another question. Um, in that way, I, I love it because you you made the point later that these this crowd is, um, they've come from the Decapolis. You mentioned and uh, how they're actually representative for us, of uh, people that we should look like. Like, we should look like them. I mean, we should be people that are hungry for Jesus and hungry for the truth the way that this crowd is. And at this point, they're not even believers. Okay, okay can we nerd out for just a second? Please,
1: let's. Just for a quick second, hold your thought, but it just hit me. We're in chapter 8, and I j- I'm just studying ch- today chapter, the rest of chapter 8 to finish our Mark series. You remember the number 3, like... You hit it perfectly in terms of the immediate context of the moment that they are willing. It shows their hunger, and they're willing to stay with Jesus, just you know, and be. And they hunger for Him more than food. Uh, but that number three, I made a kind of wink at it this last weekend. But later in Mark chapter eight, Jesus makes his second reference to the number three, mm. and it's the beginning of what we're going to see in the second volume of Mark from eight to sixteen where Jesus begins to talk about his death. Mm. So at the end of chapter eight, he talks about his death, and it's the first time he uses the number three in reference to his suffering, his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. Mm. And he says that three days later, he will rise. And what's interesting is that for three days, the disciples will hunger and long for his presence, and they'll be tempted to give up hope that what he claimed he would do would actually come to pass. And what's fascinating is it we'll see that he never talks about his death ever once without pointing to the three days later, I will rise. Mm. So I can't help but see a relationship here between these numbers, mm-hmm. that it's a bit of a foreshadow. Yeah, I made you wait three days, but on the third day, I'm going to feed you.
0: Yeah. Ooh. Well, down, dude, baby. that's fresh right there. That mm. did not come up in the first no, unrecorded didn't. conversation. No, I just realized it now. We're studying today. <sighs> dude, that's that's really cool. But okay. Fresh so, bread right out of the dude, oven. Dude, fresh bread, right <laughs> fresh pumpkin pie. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. All right. Well, that was a fun little brief foray into the nerd zone. We're gonna return there later. Um over yeast. Yes, over yeast. So if you're a baker. Uh, or if you got into, you know, the sourdough starters during COVID, like half the internet did, well then stick around. Cause we're going to talk about yeast later. Um, but for now, so a real practical question, and this could be kind of dumb, but it, that first point that you made, you pivoted from this idea that we need to bring our hunger, hungers to Jesus. And you went straight for your bread and butter pun fully intended, which was the gospel. Hey, Jesus you know, gospel of John, Jesus is the bread of life. And you were really addressing it towards people who are spiritually curious, uh, or, or not, or non-believers who had joined us in church or who are listening online or whatever. But for the rest of us who like, okay, great. We've met Jesus. We're following him. Um, we've, we've read the new Testament, you know, we have joined a small group or whatnot, but we're sitting there and we're listening to you. Like I was, I was listening to you to describe this and how, um, we need to bring our different hungers, and I was like, "Man, I have different hungers and appetites in me that I know um, are are not as they're not as holy, <laughs> they're not as life giving." Um, and so, practically, how how are we supposed to bring our hungers to Jesus? Well, that's a great
1: one. Okay, let me now that you now that we're doing this a second time. I actually have a very specific example for my own life. There's because the truth is, there's so many ways. To do that, and in the Christian life, the spiritual practices are for that purpose. They're mm. meant. There are things that we can do to train ourselves to fill our hunger with God, and the practice of silence, the practice of Sabbathing, the practice of fasting, solitude, meditation, worship, um, giving. There's these spiritual practices that it'd be fun to do a series on all the on the spiritual practices at some point they are meant to train us to bring our hunger to god in these different and to open up different areas of our life and to help us where we might be tempted to find our hunger in something other than, apart from god those spiritual practices are aimed at helping us realign our spiritual hunger with god so that the gifts of the world in our life are subordinate to the giver mm. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example that fits in with the food metaphor that we're in: fasting. So, when I find myself finding my hunger in things apart from God, especially of a material nature, it uh, fasting has been a huge help for me, hmm. and that's just me. And it, it it has huge priority in the in the Jewish life. In Jesus's life and in the Christian life for two thousand years, so it's worth acknowledging. Uh, fasting is a way to take our physical appetites and to train us to re to be retrained by the Holy Spirit through the practice to uh, see to, to to leverage our physical appetite towards spiritual um, hunger. Hmm. So for example, it could be literally physically when I'm fasting from food and I would feel hungry, I would tell myself, Lord, this is how I would, this is how I would pray and leverage the physical hunger towards spiritual hunger. Lord, I am hungering. I'll never forget we were in an in and out in line with the kids and my wife. And I could smell the <laughs> wafts of in and out deliciousness coming through the window and they're all making their orders and I'm starting to freak out because I'm like three days into the fast. And I'm just being driven crazy because the early days of fasting are the worst. And I'm getting irritable. And I just started to pray this prayer that spontaneously struck me then, and I've used it since. Lord, I hunger for you more than I hunger for that cheeseburger. And something, <laughs> it's just weird. I know it's like a weird alchemy thing. Uh, it's a bit of magic uh, in the Holy Spirit, you know, like where just saying that prayer was transformative. I felt it strike a chord with me, and I I prayed it again, and I prayed it again. It became like a bridge. It took this energy that I was having towards physical food, and it redirected it, because that's what hunger is. Mm. It's like an energy. It is the compelling of your body, mind, and spirit towards that object to to fill yourself. Mm -hmm. And that energy, I just felt like it got redirected, and it was just being redirected towards the Lord in a way that was really profound so that when I got off that extended period of fasting, I was relieved to start eating again. Don't get me wrong, but I have to admit there was like a kind of closeness to God that I I missed. Mm. And so I think fasting, but there's other types of abstinence-based spiritual practices that I do think help us redirect our hunger towards God. I think we can fast, for example, from social media. I think we can fast from um, TV, entertainment, and dedicate those spaces to God. Oh, well, see, this would have been a good application in the message. But um, at any rate, um, I think spiritual practices of silence, where we abstain from our from speaking and from our words, um, and we sit quietly before the Lord. I think Sabbath is a great one. Where we give up a day from work and performance and productivity. Really, it's about productivity. Mm. And it's about being wasteful, wasting time with God and doing things that don't feel productive. It's hard to do. When my kids have sports, we don't we're not like strict about it. We we go do the sports. Um, but by and large, we just try to do things that are just um, spontaneous, restful, rejuvenating. These things I think open us. And allow us to create space in our life for our hunger for God to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, Sabbath really does that for me. I really find my hunger for God's presence grow and be renewed on the Sabbath.
0: I like that. A lot of the practices that you just that I heard you just talk about their absence, space, their uh, their mortifications uh, to use that ancient word of of appetites or desires, just regular rhythms, intentionally choosing to disrupt regular rhythms of, of speech, of media consumption, of food consumption, um, to create sacred space in our life. And in that sacred space to operate with a high degree of intentionality, seeking God um, and asking for, Asking to have our hunger and our thirst for him inflamed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. There's much more to say on it, but I think that's at least a start. And I think um I think so if I would leave the, the the listener with one thing is like, Hey, what role does fasting have in your life? And and there's different ways to fast. You can um by the book Spiritual Discipline, uh, uh, what's it called? Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, mm-hmm. which I think is a fantastic book. And uh, there's a whole chapter on fasting, and I would recommend it. There's a book by John Piper called Hungering for God. It's all about fasting. That's a great book. And um, I think as you meditate on fasting, uh, it'll give you ideas on ways you could fast and make room for your hunger for God to grow.
0: All right. Well, if you want, um, Ryan's actually going to start a new podcast, which is called, um, tips on fasting. So no, yeah. we're not. I'm actually going to, I'm actually <laughs> going to make a, I'm actually going to make a comment to remove that. Cause it's a really dumb joke. <laughs> Nate, delete this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, since I've broken the flow of, of it, um, when we were talking about this earlier, you had brought up, I tried to u- trigger your memory by using that or- keyword Intentional. Yeah. Um, do you remember what your that the thought was that was connected to it?
1: Well, yeah, and I think I just kind of hit on it specifically. But I think bringing our hunger to God is, in a way, it's about in, being intentional in our spiritual life. I think in a lot of ways we can find ourselves being really intentional about a lot of things in our life, about our fitness, about our careers, about um, our children's sport. If you're a parent, you know, uh, dating, whatever, but. I, I find when I talk with people, there's a very low level of intentionality in people's spiritual um, life. It It's, um, I mean, I go to church, pray once in a while here and there. I hear a lot. I mean, let me tell you, how many people tell me, I just kind of practice constant prayer. I kind of constantly pray. I'm like, oh, well, that's cool. You Describe it more to me. And I think there's, I love that. Brother Lawrence, that's I love, That's my jam. But what I find is that it's a way of kind of not really like digging deep and in being intentional. It's like more random and haphazard and to be honest, a little bit undisciplined. And, um, and I think uh, intentionality is really important in any relationship. It's a little bit like a, a couple that's been married for a while. Sometimes what you need, often what is needed is to a return of intentionality to Pursuing and romanticizing your spouse mm. and cultivating intimacy beyond just getting things done together as a couple, but rekindling romance. And I think that takes intentionality. And I think that's really true about God. I don't think it's about earning anything, but the spiritual life does require effort. Mm. And um, that is not opposed to grace. I think it is the fruit and the byproduct of God's grace intentionality mm.
0: I'll take it okay thank you <laughs> <laughs> this has been received uh, and rubber stamped as an acceptable answer <laughs> <laughs> so relieved I know I know everybody was uh, <laughs> on the edge of their seat is Joseph going to approve of what Ryan yeah. just said <laughs> Um, all right, hey, let's move on there's before we get to yeast, I don't know there's um there's a hardness of heart that happens. There's this kind of curious section there, and I don't know that's a theme that we've seen throughout uh Mark oftentimes and or at least not oftentimes. There was at least one one time before where hardness of heart, yeah, well, it was with the disciples for right. sure, yeah. And then, yeah, I, th- I think that's he was it. he was surprised. he was shocked at their hardness of heart. He was disappointed at their hardness of heart. Man, when was that that? Well, was it, with
1: long. his hometown, he's surprised at their unbelief. Ah, uh, yes, but I don't think the word is specific hardness of heart. I think you see a metaphor you see a visual of the hardness of heart with the heart, the path mm-hmm. that the seed is cast on the first of the four soils, Presumably the path is hard. That's why the seed doesn't go into it, and that's why the bird, the Satan bird, can come and snatch it away. But while you're talking, I'll look it up. What's the seed? But I don't think it
0: um, it comes up any more than that. Well, I'm gonna be uh, listeners. I'm just gonna be very honest with you. I wrote hardness um, on the board and see and here, and I didn't have a lot of very good or interesting things to say. So, while Ryan's been looking this up across from me, I just was counting on his his. Brilliance and his learnedness. <laughs> I mean, it does it immediately for me connects to um, like I mentioned kind of before, has it been a theme throughout this podcast, that of curiosity, wonder. It's impossible. Um, the hardness of heart immediately connotes the fact that we are closed minded, that we are willfully, uh obstinately missing the point. And it's which is different than just ignorance or naivete. It's It's more so, like, yeah, a it contains an element of our own agency. And that particular sort of agency is antithetical to discipleship and to faith because uh, it means that we're not open. It's the It's a kind of mirror opposite of the crowd who is so hungry that they are sitting there for three days and they're just like on the edge of their their seats. Those are soft, open-hearted people as opposed to, the hard heartedness of of the disciples. Did you find? Did I talk long enough? Well, you know, actually, I couldn't find anything else.
1: I think uh, beyond what we already shared. Oh, okay, well, but I think in addition, and and it's not like a, it's not different. It's just a, a different way of saying it. I think there's just a resistance. Mm-hmm. When I think of something that's hard, it's resistant to, to being to pliability or to to being molded. You know, what I think of when I think of a hard heart. If we were to kind of you know, think, look at it through the lens of the parable of the soils, right? Because it's the emphasis. The variable is not the seed; it's the soil. And um, in my in my yard, there's usually this, and maybe it's true for all yards. I don't know, but my topsoil is is soft, uh, but it's like only like maybe an inch or two, and it's very hard. And where I, in Encinitas, there's like this kind of clay or, I don't know if it's clay or what it is. It's just very hard. And it's what I think we are seeing with the disciples. I mean, their response to Jesus in chapter one is, it is stunningly soft and responsive. It's shocking. Mm -hmm. It is certainly on par with anything else anybody else has done beyond what they've done. I mean, yeah, the people dig through the roof, that's amazing. Or the woman who pushes through the crowd and touches the hem of his robe, or the woman who gets his parable, right? The Greek woman, and she's like, it's not right to give to, but you know, even the dogs eat the crumbs. But the disciples give up their whole life. I mean, they don't just get him in a moment, they get him and they stay with him. But what I think we're seeing here is There's this top soil that's soft, and as they follow Jesus, Jesus is taking is going deeper and deeper into their hearts and their lives, and he's coming up against the place in their hearts that is hard. Mm. And it's not. It's like, how do you make sense of that? I don't think it's the disciples are regressing, because I think that is how it feels in our spiritual life. You know that, oh, now look at me. Now I'm getting worse. I'm actually walking away from God. I'm I'm Mm -hmm. losing my faith. Or is it that God has has gone deeper into our life and has uncovered a hardness that has always been there, but that we just weren't conscious of on the surface of our life. And I think that's what we're seeing with Jesus and the
0: disciples. He's, And I think that's more indicative of our journey with him. Mm. I really like that. And that actually, that's supported by the kind of the text here and the, the point that you made about is this a doublet, you know, or is this a, a unique second instance? And you just kind of laughing at the, um, the idiocy of the overeducated in some ways of being like, oh, he couldn't possibly have done, done it twice, you know, and being like, Hey, dude, we need to learn stuff. Like we need repetition. Like why couldn't he just have done it, it twice? Um, it, so it connects, it connects there. I think that kind of supports, um, the point you were just making. But when you're sharing that, it, it brought back to mind a really pivotal point for me in my own faith journey, which was towards the very end of college. And I was about to graduate with a degree in theology. And I was, I remember going into the office of Keith Beebe, um, former Presbyterian minister and kind of my, one of my main mentors and professors and just distraught because I felt uh, I didn't feel close to God. I, I, was really having a tough time connecting to any any church, and um, I went b- to him kind of distraught and saying like, "Hey, am I about to graduate with a degree in theology only to have lost my faith?" And his response was uh, was really similar to what you just said. He said, "I don't think so. I actually think that I actually think that this is a part of the process of God expanding your understanding of faith and your definition of what you know spirituality and, and following Jesus looks like." which was such a profound grace. Uh, it was a beautiful pastoral moment from him because what it did was it gave me freedom to trust that God was at work in the midst of that, that my own hardness of heart was not, a, or uh, was not a disqualifier, but that it was a, perhaps in appointing me towards areas that I needed to let Jesus further into. Yeah. So I do th- that, uh, just a, an unasked for personal anecdote, but one that supports your point.
1: Yeah, and I think this is the, in theological terminology, this is uh, sanctification. Yeah. And there is a, it's a process, it's a progression, it's a journey. Mm. And it takes us from degrees into, from glory to glory. You know, we're and, uh, but to get to those, to grow in maturity, like in any probably area of our life, uh, we come up against these thresholds these kind of really a kind of almost decision moments in our life as we walk with Jesus, where we have to kind of face hard things mm. where we come up against these places of hardness in us. And some of those hardnesses can be, can that hardness can represent, I think of a closed door, a door that's locked, that's shut and is not easily opened. And it might be, um, uh, it, it could be a a, a wound, place in her heart that is, because of a wound, we're, we're trapped in a, a narrative about herself. We're trapped in a narrative about our life, about God. Like, for example, a woman who wrote me and was really upset. I think I shared this story about when I gave a teaching about um, participating in Jesus's supernatural ministry. She was really upset about the teaching on healing because she had prayed for her mother to be healed of cancer. Her mother had died. That Disappointment, that deep wound left her really, really embittered anytime anyone talked about healing. Mm-hmm. And um, and she and, and in a way, her understanding of God and his power to heal and his desire to heal, his, his nature to heal, uh was frozen in time and stuck there at that closed door because of that traumatic, painful wounding experience. But by God's grace, I reached out to her, and we had a profound conversation by the grace of God. And mm. she had a healing of that experience, that memory, and began to realize, you know what? Maybe I need to change the way I see God on this topic. But I think that's an example of a hardness of heart. It could be a place of addiction. We're attached to something. We can't imagine letting it go because of the safety, the security the that it gives us. And so we have clenched fists. I'm reading The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And he really does portray these characters as sort of attached to certain ideologies, certain views of self, and this one character in Addiction, it's like this lizard thing on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And they just will not let them go. They're stuck there, as you said, kind of, but stubborn, resistant to allowing themselves to be freed from it, and um, it prevents them from receiving God's grace in that area of their life, or in the case of the book, from entering into uh, the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. But I think for the disciples, uh, they are coming up against a very understandable r- resistance. Like, can, is G, can is Jesus can, can he really multiply the loaves? If you you can say they had a bigger challenge to face in that moment than the crowds, because the disciples were hungry as well as the crowds. But then on top of it, Jesus asked them, what will I do? That's a challenging place to be in, but it's where God takes us as disciples. And he brings us against the limits of our faith, and we resist him. And he is so gracious, but he will work with us in those spaces until we surrender those spaces. And until then, our, we kind of suffer a bit of an arrested development in our faith.
0: Mm. Well, and even worse than that, you know, it's, as I'm listening to you describe how woundedness can create hardness in areas that are off limits to God, it also started to remind me of uh, of yeast, which is the, the place I want to take us next, um, and about how yeast is something that will you know penetrates and works its way for better for for worse you know through through dough through a bread and and woundedness can do the same thing bitterness unforgiveness can do the same thing you know it's it's not if we're not careful and if we stay resistant for too long or like you said an an addiction is this escalating feedback loop of appetites that have become destructive and disordered and they kind of you know the want the clinical definition of addiction is uh you know a a substance you know dependence on a substance or process that uh increases intense intensity you know so um more of this more is required to achieve the same level of satisfaction or or pleasure as before and yeah the threshold gets higher uh Mm uh-huh um
1: threshold for satisfaction
0: yes yeah yeah but I kind of I want to pivot and and talk about yeast. Yes. Yes. Um Nerd Zone. <laughs> uh, if this was like a proper, you know, old school radio show, we would have some weird form of uh audio engineering where there would be a little segment transition. Welcome to the Nerd Zone. Um but in verse 15, it is really kind of strange because it almost this section almost kind of comes out of nowhere. Jesus has just gotten done talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had been coming to question or to test him or to tempt him. And he gets back into the boat and and across to the other side. And the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. And then, yep, I didn't even play with that. And then, which is, yeah, hilarious that they had seven baskets of leftovers and uh, only, who do you think it was who thought to grab one loaf? i think matthew he's the man of detail Hmm. i was gonna go maybe with judas <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, for himself yeah maybe you're right there's bro. the one like, you're like, right. like oh dude do we have any food and judas is he's there got it like, in his
1: back pocket <laughs> i saw the bag i saw that baguette sticking out <laughs> he's been
0: skimming the offerings and the loafs of bread um but no, so Jesus' comments there: "Be careful," Jesus warned them. "Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod." That I don't blame them for being confused after that because it kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, but it got me thinking about yeast, and I mean, what does that what does that mean in this context? What does it connote? What's the what's any background that we can dig up there? And does that shed light on us as as followers of Jesus? Any ideas? Well, wait, so what's the
1: question What about the yeast? What's it represent?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. What does the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod represent? But I, I think one of the things I was pointing out is that it just, it happens. Jesus offers this little like parable, but it's, it's, it feels almost out of the blue. Like he just notices that the disciples only have one piece of bread. And then he looks at them and says, be care." It's almost a non sequitur. Yeah which I didn't really notice the first time I was reading it.
1: I mean, I think in general, it's, uh, it's their worldly point of view. They don't see things from God's perspective. They see things from a human perspective. And that's probably the most basic general way we could look at this, right? It's a human perspective to say, I've got seven loaves, and that's not enough to feed 4,000 people. It's very reasonable from a human perspective. Mm. The Pharisees have replaced faith in a supernatural God with traditions of men, with human tradition, mm-hmm. which are within their control, within their manipulative abilities for their own personal benefit and um, control over the situation, right? That's his indictment on them. He's like, you pretend to honor God, but really you're just putting on a bunch of human traditions for your, so that you have control over people, so that you're in control, so you have power. It's the grasping of power, which is the human approach—I have to have power, and um, and the Old Testament's full of this. I mean, I could we go on. and I'll come back to that maybe in a minute if you want. If we want to go there, but then I think the other end of the spectrum is Herod, who has like sort of the most obvious worldly power. The Pharisees have sort of religious power, which did hold a high level of credibility in their culture as a as a religious culture. Um, then you have the, the Herod, who has sort of political power. He has authority from Caesar, which is the most powerful empire in the world at the time. And he has uh, authority from, from Caesar to exercise power. And he has so much power that if he wants, he'll just cut the head off John the Baptist. So here you have John the Baptist, this person of spiritual authority, who is imprisoned and then killed by Herod. And so on the surface of things, it just looks like he has power. And the Pharisees end up having Jesus killed, so they have power. So it's I think it's a picture of um, looking at the world through a human perspective and not from a God's perspective, and human perspective is to, to grab for power mm-hmm. and to use religion for power, to use politics for power, and to find ourselves, I think, uh, infected with that perspective. And the reason why I go with that is because... The very next moment, they're in the boat, and they're arguing about what they don't have. A situation where they don't feel like they have enough, and they're focused on their lack of resource. And I think it's, a, it's ultimately resources that results in all the power and politic dynamics of our world. Hmm. And so they're focused on the bread. And Jesus says to him, why are you focused on the bread? Because that's the human perspective. Hmm. What do we have in hand? And Jesus is like, you are forgetting the one who's in the boat. You're forgetting me. I just did all this all these miracles of multiplication, and you you think that's what I'm concerned with. Hmm. They keep overlooking him, and they don't understand and are slow to believe the difference that Jesus makes in real life concrete situations. And it, I think it kind of gets at the temptation for all of us to view spirituality as a sort of pie in the sky sort of like a wishful thinking kind of a thing. Mm. Whereas for Jesus, it is a very concrete, substantive, substantial reality. For him, spirituality in the kingdom of God is as con- is more concrete than the bread that people eat. But maybe for the people of the time, the Pharisees, they had lost faith in the, the substance of God's kingdom and promise. And it started to drift and find their confidence in just human power. Mm-hmm. And that's always in the New, in the Old Testament, right? When they were threatened by a foreign power that had military power. I mean, how many times did David and the Israelites go through this, right? He, God would indict them for what? For going to another foreign power, you know, to form some kind of relationship, to find an ally, to find confidence against... You know, whether it was Assyria or whoever, mm-hmm. and and the, that would be the prophet's indictment against them. That's really what Herod and the the Pharisees have done. And I think what's really scandalous is the way that religion can do that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So I think some of what I'm hearing you say is yeast is uh, what does yeast do? Yeast is a catalytic, transformational element And so for us if we listen to this this caution of Jesus to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, the the temptation for all of us is to say well okay yeah where are you, where are you putting your, your hopes and your faith um, in to see transformation in your life or in the world? And yeah, two of the, I mean the, the, two easiest places that we as humans go is, is religion or politics um, or economy, <laughs> uh, which actually is, is bound up and represented by Herod as well. I mean, he's somebody who's uh, that last scene that we see of him is he's throwing this extravagant uh, feast, which is in you know, a way to showcase the fact that he has, uh, he, he can do that because he's somebody of power, not just politi- politically, but because of the kind of corruption of the government, he's also uh, powerful economically. So where the temptation for us, yeah, like do we believe in the transformational power of just religion uh, represented by the the Pharisees or do we trust in the the transformational power of of the state um, or just of raw power itself or are we, Or are we trusting in the yeast of the gospel and the kingdom of God? Because yeast is also, it's not just used negatively in the New Testament. I mean, late I think it's in, is it in Matthew, maybe? It's Luke. It's Luke? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, where Jesus compares the kingdom of God to yeast. And that's in in a positive way. Yeah, that's right. It's only, it
1: shows up one at a time in that way. But yeah, that's right. And I think it's the invisible pervasive influence. That I think was a, because yeast was a common household item, and I think it just really immediately speaks to being influenced here in a negative, you know, negatively influenced by the Pharisees and the Herod and Herod and the way the way they think. And that's if you want to listen to a great message, go back and listen to Nick's teaching on on the the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees about the way that they have used human tradition as a a buffer between them and God to replace God as a substitute for the commands of God. Uh, Great
0: teaching by Nick. Yeah, he's all right. We'll keep him around. (laughs) There's some, uh, as I was thinking more about yeast um, and thinking about it, what would that have meant to the disciples? Uh, We've talked a couple of different times about how some of the backdrop, it seems of what's going on here in in Mark is Exodus, and I—I I mean, I, that's probably one of the most prominent examples of of yeast. One of one of yeast's shining moments in the Bible is obviously um, is connected to Exodus and to uh, Passover, and of course the the Jewish practice of not using yeast or leaven, using unleavened bread uh, to remember their hasty flight. From Egypt and God's deliverance of them there. And so there's, um, I feel like that, I feel like Jesus is being intentional when he uses that. And it, once again, for a Jewish reading audience would have provoked that reminder of, which is once again, another story of, all right, the people of God, are you going to trust in the power of empire? Or are you going to trust in The seemingly foolish power of God Uh, is, are you going to trust that he's going to provide for your needs and he's going to liberate you, or are you going to yearn for your old appetites and for the comforts of Egypt?
1: Yeah, that's right. I I don't even, you know, the use of the Pharisee, I didn't bring it up because I didn't see, it didn't help me understand or explain how it related to the Pharisees per se, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the gospel of Mark, it's fascinating the way you know we're reflecting on it, that it was because the, the Israelites were in a hurry. And so it was meant to communicate the urgency and the immediacy of God's deliverance. After 400 years, the time has come. Mm-hmm. You don't even have time for yeast and wait for the bread to rise. We're leaving. Because the gospel of Mark is, is uh, noticeably marked by that kind of same urgency, mm-hmm. and immediacy with the constant reference and use of the word immediately all throughout his gospel. It captures
0: that exodus uh pace and tone. Dude, that's a great point as well. I hadn't thought about that one. Point to you, Fife. Come on, Old Testament nerd zone. Old Testament nerd zone. Okay, so we've kind of talked about what the potential impact that would have had on the disciples. Who's the Jewish audience, but in the readers of Mark weren't Jewish. They're Gentiles. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you know, that uh, the fact that they're Gentiles made me think about their context in Rome, like they are written to the Christians in Rome and facing martyrdom. And, you know, the only thing I would add to that is when the Christians, one thing that was very popular in Rome during that time was that the Caesars would use bread to manipulate and curry favor with the crowd. They would use bread, guess where? In particular, they would hand out bread for free at the Coliseum during the gladiatorial games and when they were bringing in people for martyrdom, mm. like Christians and other prisoners, and secondly, at the circus. So it was used for entertainment, manipulation, and yet it's like, I can just, I don't know, I just imagine as... Christians in Rome are seeing, you know, Nero giving bread away, currying favor with the crowd, that would remind them of Jesus, the 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 king, the new king, the king of a new kingdom mm. that has come to supplant the kingdom of the world, and to remember His bread, the bread of life, that gives us eternal life, and as they even see. Their comrades, their brothers and sisters being led to martyrdom in the Colosseum amidst people, you know, gorging themselves on free bread and being entertained, uh, they would remember the bread of Jesus and his body broken for them. And knowing that as their comrades and their brothers and sisters are broken in the Colosseum physically um, in martyrdom, that... They're only inheriting eternal life because of Jesus' brokenness for them on the cross. That seems like a lot of reading into it, but bread was a big deal in Rome and was used to, you know, to, I think, stabilize the kingdom. But here, Jesus is not using bread to manipulate or to curry favor. He uses it as a, an act of grace. Unearned, undeserved favor, a demonstration of his compassion and mm. love, and ultimately um, a symbol of his body broken for them.
0: Well, Nick, well, Nick, you're not Nick. <laughs> yeah. I hey, think... Edit I, that too! I think that that, uh I think that right there might reveal about where I'm at. <laughs> I think I might have run out of steam. Um, I don't, I don't think I can think of anything else to say about yeast or bread about these, about these dumb disciples who clearly don't get it, (laughs) who don't remember. So Ryan, uh, unless you've got a a final closing word for us this week, I think that we can probably put a pin in our discussion of this first half of, of eight, And uh, we can wait with bated breath for reconvening (laughs) next week. Yes, to finish the, out the, the first climactic moment. The climactic moment, what we've all been waiting for, which will also mark pause in this podcast because we're going to take a break for the holiday season, for the Christmas season. And we're doing here at the church a a mini series leading up to Christmas, but we will resume the Just Follows after, after next the new year. Yeah, We'll after.
1: have like a Christmas slash new year message, and then we'll pick up a uh, second week, weekend of January. Volume 2. This one was called um, Just Follow Jesus with a decidedly um, clear focus on what does it mean to follow Jesus and be a disciple. With the next one, similar, but through the lens of the cross. So the title of the next series is called The Way of the Cross.
2: (sighs) Are
1: are we going to have to come
0: up with an entirely new podcast? It's called The Way of the Cross. Yeah.
1: We got to because... It's, uh, it's a very different kind of, it's a very, it's like a total noose act in the play. You know, it's change of scenery, the repeating phrases, and terminology, they change, the really dominant themes change. So, for example, when I say the way of the cross, the reason why I picked the way of the cross is because uh, I think it's at least nine times Mark uses the phrase on the way. And he uses this phrase, doesn't use it in Mark 1, but he uses it in Mark 2 because it's meant to reflect uh, the life of Jesus and the life of discipleship marked by the cross. And it's used all the way as a literally or physically journey from Caesarea Philippi. Jesus goes to, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the highest point north recorded in Mark, Caesarea Philippi. And then he begins his journey from that point all the way south uh, to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. We'll leave behind the Sea of Galilee mm. and we'll leave behind the whole region of Galilee. And be the the landscape will be dominated by the road to Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself.
0: Shadow of the cross. Yep, indeed. All right, well, friends, there you have it. That's what's in store for us. So join us next week. We're going to have one more conversation in this series of conversations the just follow Jesus podcast following along in our series. And yeah. then we're going to, we'll be back with the way of the cross, but until then have a wonderful week. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the just follow Jesus podcast. For more information about the series or our church, you can visit North coast, Calvary We also still have some copies of a special coffee table quality journal that we designed and put together to accompany this series in the gospel of Mark. This whole podcast is a resource of North Coast Calvary Chapel. It's produced and directed by Joseph Carlson. The editing has been done by Nate King and the music is by the one and only Brian McMaster. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.